I fought a good fight. I finished my football race. And after 18 years, it's time. Basketball players, we're really supposed to shut up and dribble, but I'm glad, I'm glad we do a little bit more than that. Eventually, every ball would go flat. But that doesn't mean that your life will flatline. What will you do when the game is over? All right, everybody, welcome back to episode 61 of Bro Bible's Endless Hustle. I am your host, Arthur Cade, and boy, do we have an episode ahead for you. Man, what a cool threesome of guests that we have on this episode. And a mixture of everything, we have one of the biggest stars in TV and comedy, one of the best analysts in the NFL for ESPN, and one of the biggest reality stars on E! doing plastic surgery for pretty much everybody. What a cool episode. Our guests this week are Joe McHale, ESPN insider Mike Tannenbaum, and E's botch star Dr. Dubro. Super exciting guests to talk about. First up, Joe McHale, he's become one of the biggest stars in comedy today. Obviously, his career started with The Soup on E. That became a phenomenon and, for me, became the first time that I became aware of him. He then landed what ended up being one of the most cult-followed shows of our generation with Community. They're still talking about Community getting either a reboot or a movie. And now he has a brand new show on Fox called Crime Scene Kitchen. Premieres tomorrow, Wednesday, May 26. We talked all about it. I've been a longtime fan of Joel. And to be able to, to spend 45 minutes with him diving into his career his rise in fame, his love of Seattle sports, what it was like doing the stoop, being dyslexic. This is something you guys have to hear because for those of you like me who grew up watching the soup, it was a one of its kind show. Joe's dry delivery and sense of humor was just laugh out loud funny. But the whole time he was reading off a teleprompter and he was dyslexic. Unbelievable performance from him. And to be able to hear about how he was able to manage that and then use it as a marketing tool for promoting the soup was awesome. Of course, I'd mentioned Community. Community was one of those shows like The Office that when it first started, didn't really light the world on fire. And then now you look at it and it's got this incredibly dedicated cult following. Joel's constantly being asked if they're going to be doing a reboot. We talked all about that. And then his new show, Crime Scene Kitchen, although it might sound like a murder show, it's essentially the masked singer for a baking show. And we talked all about why he decided to do that. So I think you guys are going to really love this. Joel brought his trademark sarcasm and his trademark humor to the interview. Absolutely hilarious. And as an interviewer myself, the greatest privilege is when you're interviewing somebody to have to be on your feet constantly and understand organically where the interview is going. And Joel is the perfect example of someone who kept me on my feet. And the interview went probably a hundred different directions differently than I expected it to. And that is a lot of fun for me. So here you go, guys. Crime Scene Kitchen star, Joel McHale. Let's go. It is an awesome and funny day on the Endless Hustle because I've got one of the funniest dudes in show business joining me, Joel McHale. Joel, wow. my first question is your screen name is Hole, H-O-E-L. Yeah. Explain that to me. It's Hoel. Okay. Uh, some people pronounce it Hoel, 
And then I kind of like it's a play on whole. Uh, and it's just more of a butt joke. It's pretty highbrow. Very I know. Highbrow. I mean, I would have never guessed had you not just explained it to me, but I guess that's why you're killing it in show business and I get to interview you. Wow. Uh, well, it really does show that your podcast or broadcast has really sunk. It's really fallen. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I've hit the depths, the depths of humanity here. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what's next after this. Probably uh, you'll be interviewing cartoon characters. It'll be great. <laughs> Triumph the insult dog. That's, that's the only thing left. That would be a massive step up. That would be huge. Where are you right now? I am in Manhattan. I am in oh. the beautiful borough of New York City. How about you? You're in LA, I'm guessing. Studio City. That's right. The neighborhood of Studio City. It's uh, balmy, 70 degrees here. Cloudy. Oh. We have better weather than you, 78 and sunny. There you go. Just wait till like a month and a half and then tell me how the weather is I there. I know. I'll be like, hey, Joel, can I crash in your guest room? I'll be like, no, you're too sweaty. Uh, everything's opened up now, right? It is. It's a party. New York is New York again. You guys need to follow our lead and be able to actually do stuff again. Two weeks, two and a half weeks, I think. June 15th is when everything opens. You mean the streets are packed? Everyone's walking again? Dude, it's amazing. It's New York again. I was just talking to my producers. I was out this weekend in clubs. We were having a blast. Felt like I was 22 again. Wow. Uh, you don't look 22. No offense. <laughs> I hope you didn't you... act like you were 22. Unfortunately, probably I do. How old, okay. do, you think, how old do you think I look? Because I just had a birthday. 68. <laughs> About there. Am I I'm right? Gonna go, I'm going to go jump off the roof of my building now, Joel. I don't know. 35? I can't guess that thing. I'm 43, my man. There you go. See? You look terrific. And you look at your locks, your hair, your very New York long hair thing. Hair transplant, dude. Was balding hair transplant. Well, the back is glorious. Uh, that's now all the now are they taking down all the outdoor seating or is that staying for the moment? It's all staying and it's beautiful. Wow. So lots of kind of ducking into the street to get around Jersey barriers that are set. Okay, that's cool. Hey man, congrats on the new show, by the way. Crime scene kitchens, which until I read up on what this was, I'm like, what the hell is crime scene kitchen? So that's when right. Heard, when you heard the title of that show, what were your thoughts? someone's gonna die uh and yeah i thought oh man uh people are gonna eat desserts and then perhaps end up dead like in the you know the game clue but uh no i heard it and i thought oh that's a good idea which i would like to be a part of because uh obviously there's a lot of very very good baking shows out there and uh i do partake in baked goods uh strategically but I thought the whole thing, the kind of mystery of you're not really sure what you're making, you're making a guess is really, uh, I would say, watchable, as they say. And so there's that mystery to it. So there's teams competing against each other. And you, you go, these teams go into this kitchen, they have two minutes just to look for evidence of something that was baked. And then they get thrown out of there and they're like, all right, we found cocoa powder, some simple syrup, some yeast. Uh, some flour and uh, then they have to you know they have a couple hours to, to try to recreate it so I think the kind of unboxing mystery part is is really engaging and of course wonderful wonderful baked cakes pies you name it uh, they made it 
So it's essentially the masked singer of baking. Yes. There's just less sweaty people in chicken costumes. And uh, there's no murder, uh, which is great. Uh, I guess there's no murder in Mass Singer. But yes, it's kind of like I can see your voice and, and, and Mass Singer in that you're trying to figure something out. And I really like that aspect of it. And when you take these things, you can kind of feel like, oh, they're going to manufacture drama. And this one, we did. I know they didn't have to, which makes me very happy. They have to do that in so many reality shows where they have to kind of fill in with with music and tension building stuff but they didn't I don't from the cut I saw I was like oh this works great I'm always fascinating around casting anytime there's a hit you pretty much have every producer on the planet saying we need to recreate this in some different format because it's working and find the next host for this show for that show the mass singer I feel like set off a domino effect of shows that kind of use that format. How does it all begin when a show is a hit and then is every TV host out there saying, throw my name in the ring, I wanna host this one or that one? How does the whole casting thing work when something yeah. is hot? Well, there's a ring and it's in uh, North Hollywood and we all have write our names on a piece of paper and then we throw it into this ring and then it just gets churned up. And then the television executives walk by and pull one out and then, they go, James Corden, and that's that. Um, I, well, how does it work? Well, I know the producers of this show through The Masked Singer, so that really helped. And um, and I've gotten to know them over the years being on different things that Fox has produced. And then they produced Ken Jong and I's Toast and Roast that we hosted for New Year's. So I obviously had a relationship and uh, with, with the folks. And so it was a good transition or good, you know, like that's kind of how it came together. And uh, I, so that I don't know exactly how, I will say thank you to like Ellen uh, DeGeneres and Jamie Foxx and uh, Dwayne Johnson and like Keegan-Michael Key, cause they all started hosting game shows at a time when there was still like this thing where like, oh, you can't host a game show if you want to be in movies and television. And they just blew the, and same thing with Alec Baldwin, they just kind of blew the lid off that thing. and. Now anybody can do it, which is great. I want to talk to you about Talk Soup because that was the first time I'd ever become the a soup. Talk yeah. Soup. No, The Soup. The Soup. Didn't it become Talk Soup or is it The Soup? It was always The it Soup. It was Talk Soup in the 90s. You're showing your age. And, um, and then it stopped being Talk Soup. Then uh, in 2000 and then 2004 is when it was brought back as The Soup because uh, they didn't want... Uh, well, there was, we had a couple different names for the show, but Ted Harbert, the president of E at the time, wanted the association of Talk Soup, but it wasn't, we wanted it to be about everything and not just talk shows. So we could have just kept it as Talk Soup, but it just stayed, it, we made it the soup. But that's so long ago, my friend, back when you were a 22-year-old man. I, I know, scary. When that all happens for you, was that essentially your breakout? Was that the life-changing moment where all of a sudden the career started moving? Yeah, I mean, technically, yeah, I would say, yeah, but it was not, nobody watched The Soup for the first year. And when I say nobody, I think it was just my parents and my mother-in-law who was not a big fan of it. Uh, she was, always, she didn't like the fact that I swore. And um, so 
So there was, I didn't, everyone's like, is that your big break? I was like, technically, yes. But that break took about three years before. So the first year, no one watched, but we were so cheap that E kept us on. And for you young kids out there, there, there used to be um, a thing called programming. And then there was time slots and uh, you knew when things were on and people knew channel numbers uh, and 10 o'clock on Friday nights was a wasteland on uh, cable television. And then uh, we slowly built an audience to the point where about two and a half years later, we had a real audience. And so, yes. So uh, I would say that would be the bit kind of the break. It just was a gradual break. When was there a moment where you realized, all right, this actually is a success. And then once it did happen, how is Hollywood reacting to you? Are they seeing you as an actor? Are they seeing you as now a permanent host? And then what were your ambitions as it's happening? Well, I wanted to do it because Greg Kinnear had hosted Taksu way back in 1991 when you were 10. And um, uh, he then obviously transitioned to acting. And I thought, well, that guy did both. And that's pretty cool. And uh, Hollywood can be a popularity contest. And I, in 2004, was getting parts here and there. I was getting a lot of commercials. I didn't have a real agent uh, as far as for tel movies and television. I had an amazing commercial agent, but I didn't have one, really. And I, so I was like, if I do this show, then maybe I can get auditions for the lead roles that I want, uh, which is what happened. So... Uh, once um, I kind of popped up on people's radars, they started bringing me in for things like that, which was great. So I did a pilot. I did two pilots in one year. Uh, both did not get picked up. Uh, and then in 2008, it was a few years later, Steven Soderbergh cast me in a movie. So that really, that helped a lot uh, to kind of go like, oh, the guy can be in movies or be an actor in a movie. And so that that kind of, that's what I was going for. And then then also in 2009, Community happened. And the, the only reason why I was even considered for that role was because at the time, Dan Harmon's girlfriend, Erin uh, Hill was watching, uh, you know, The Soup, and I almost called it Talk Soup. And um, and she goes, hey, that's your guy. And, uh, and it was a definite struggle to get the role, but uh, not because Dan and the Russo brothers wanted me for the role, but it was NBC that was not sure. So anyway, that's kind of how it kind of the cookie crumbled there. And uh, the whole time I stayed doing the soup because I loved it and the show was working and it was really fun, uh, all that stuff. So I, I still can't believe that show ended six years ago. It's weird. Then community happens and community ends up developing this phenomenal fan following. Mm -hmm. So when community starts exploding, what is that like? Uh, community, well, it was weird. It was always an underground or cult hit, or that's what they always wanted to call it. But the ratings, everyone always talked about the rating struggles. And I was also like, the ratings are not struggling. We're doing just fine. We're up against the Big Bang Theory, which is Oh, anybody's going to get killed doing that. So we had a very loyal following. Uh, and then we got canceled and then we got brought back. The, the following has grown. And, and uh, since it got onto streamers and especially Netflix last year at this time or last uh, year and a half ago. And that 
that the, the show just slowly built up this following, uh, thank God. And we knew the show was doing well when we would go to Comic-Con because the, we could fill that big hall and do one of those big, huge things. Um, but the ratings were always, uh, you know, we were always called ratings challenged because I think um, journalists uh, just jumped onto that narrative and decided that's what it was because when Parks and Rec would take our place, we would always outrate them. No offense to Parks and Rec, but that's what happened. And so, cause we were always defending and fighting for our show. Uh, cause I think people think, Oh, once you're on a show and you're, it's a hit, it's fine. You're just, you're just working and you're making money and you're just going. And I was like, it definitely, we were told multiple times at the, at the end of uh, multiple seasons, we were always asked, can this be the, season and series finale episode and you're like dear god so uh it's always you know you always think uh oh that must be going so well and you're like it seems that it's going week to week anyway uh yeah it was really fun obviously it really hurt donald glover's career and i wish something had happened i wish he had done well but you know we can only uh, we can only look back and hope I read that Robin Williams is your hero and he's probably the greatest comedic genius outside of Eddie Murphy in his prime to ever live. So I want to talk to you about the influence of Robin Williams. Do you remember the first time that you saw him and how it impacted you? Well, I watched Mork uh, and Mork was a great show, uh, obviously. And I think it will go down in history as one of the better shows ever made. And he was magical a freaking genius on it and um he obviously had the um the chops to be a movie star because then he turned into the biggest one of the biggest movie stars on the planet i got to work with him and he was as kind as you could possibly ever hope for and was uh such a smart man and i yeah i i look back on that like i can't believe i'm doing a movie with Robin Williams, I don't know if it was a very good movie, but uh, but I, I I don't care. It was a month I got to spend with him, and um, yeah, I mean the inf- I've listened to yeah his uh, comedy albums as a kid. Obviously, I watched so many of his movies, and you know, like the combination of the the way he could do comedy and drama and combine them both is pretty unmatched, pretty remarkable, and. Uh, yeah, I got to go to, I, you know, I got to, I, I went to his funeral and it was one of the sadder ones I've ever been to. And yeah, it's still surreal that he's gone. It's been a few years now, but uh, surreal. Anyway, yeah, I look back on that as, yeah, I mean, if you, if you want to, if, if you're a very talented person and you work your butt off, uh, it might work. And uh, uh, working your butt off is probably more important, but uh, Robin Williams showed that he just never stopped working. He just loved working, and he was obviously he gave us so many gifts. When you're working with him, and I'm always fascinated when you get to work with your idols, you have to obviously be a professional in the moment. But are there moments of geeking out, and how do you maintain that balance? You're not fawning over him because oh my god, Robin Williams is in front of me, but shit i don't want him to think i'm a complete loser and not want to work with me again yeah i mean you kind of you I, I i geeked out for the first few days and then i was like all right dude you need to focus and uh and then once i kind of really focused on the relationship that our characters had it was pretty easy and and then he was very conversational off camera and 
So then we really started having fun. And then it's, then it's Robin and it's not, oh my gosh, it's Robin Williams. Then when you find yourself working together on something, when you're, when you're doing it together, all of a sudden you're focused on this other thing and not, not on, I'm not focused on one of the biggest stars in the history of movies. So that, that, that can, that goes away after a little bit. Like, you know, I was working with Matt Damon on years ago on that informant movie. And that was like, oh my gosh, it's Matt Damon. It's the, it's Jason Bourne, but, uh, but he had put on weight for the, uh, for the role. So I was like, oh, look, it's, it's good times, Jason Bourne. And um, it really, that was also like, I just, you need to focus on each scene and what you, what you want and what you're doing. And then that, then, it, then that stuff kind of goes away. I also read that you have a knife collection and forensic files is your favorite show. That terrifies me, Joel. These are, want- these are, these are very strange signs, Joel. You never know. Just watch. Don't break into my home. Uh, I got dogs and swords. So, yeah, I like it's one of the reasons why I like crime scene kitchen, because uh, I want to figure, you know, I want to figure out murders and what things were baked. Uh, I love friends. You're like signed on. You're like, I'm in crime scene kitchen. They're like, no, Joel, it's essentially the mass singer of baking. And you're like, what the fuck? What are you talking about? I was like, just one dead body. Uh, yeah, I love forensic files. If anybody gets a chance, go watch forensic files. Cause they're, you know, I think they started in the nineties and then went, they had a run of, uh, episodes and then HLN just started putting them on and it became the most popular thing. Now, when you turn on HLN at night, it's only forensic files, which brings me so much joy. Uh, and it's so popular now that they brought the series back and started making new ones. So, uh, I mean, they must have made, I don't know, it's 400 of them. So I think I've seen them all. Yes. And I have a sword and knife collection. That's not weird. It's normal. Do I have drawers full of them? Maybe. Yeah. I would love to interview your wife and be like, um, what did you think about Joel when your first date was Forensic Files and he's got the knife collection to the side? Our first date was the X-Files, my friend. Uh, and on our honeymoon, I bought a switchblade in Italy. So she was like, who have I married? <laughs> She's uh, like, where's the prenup? Where do I sign? Yeah, what happened? Uh, yeah, I don't know why I've always always liked edged weapons. Uh, I look at them online. I follow different edged weapon makers. I buy them. It's not necessarily healthy, but you know, what are you going to do? How did the whole Seattle sports fascination begin? Do you remember your earliest memory where you're like, I'm going to be a Seattle sports fan? Well, I was a kid and I could tell you the lineups of the Seahawks and the Mariners and of the, uh, of the Sonics. And then we moved. So we were not, none of the I mean, uh, Sonics won the championship in 1980. But we moved from Seattle to New Jersey in 1977. And the Philadelphia Phillies, uh, we, we moved to New Jersey. We just moved outside to a suburb outside of Philadelphia. And the Phillies won the World Series, right? Yep. And I felt so torn because uh, I was like, wait a minute. I just came from a city as team. Our team was terrible. And now that I'm supposed to... Am I supposed to, I feel like I'm cheating if I root for this team that's the best. So I'm just bandwagoning. I even felt that as a kid. Uh, so we moved back to Seattle and then I was, uh, you know, felt kind of like, okay, uh, good. We, and all the Seattle teams for so many years were just kind of average and not great. And I think that's what grew the absolute allegiance to them, no matter 
how poorly we did, we would behind get behind them. So then when teams did started doing well, you know, with Sean Kemp and Gary Payton in the mid nineties, when we were take on, taking on the bulls in the finals, you know, we were, we were ready to be fan. And same thing that happened with music in the nineties and our late eighties in, in Seattle, where none of the big acts would ever come through Seattle. They would just go San Francisco up to Vancouver, up to BC place. So you two would never play. And like, it was a huge deal when partner Paul McCartney played the kingdom they're like, what is he do? Why did he come here? And uh, I think it was because the Beatles had stayed, had played the key arena back in the sixties and stayed at the Edgewater Inn. But um, so anyway, that's a very long answer to say that uh, Seattle was always kind of a little tiny, like a small city tucked up in the corner of the country. And all we did was make airplanes and no one, and you know, speed and methamphetamine but no one else could figure out what we did. And then all of a sudden we took the world over and with Microsoft and Amazon and Starbucks and you name it, uh, we were, we are, we are, uh, we have everything that you need, a computer, a cup of coffee and an airplane. I grew up loving sports center. And I think if there is one person who is not part of sports center, that if I could imaginarily go out there and say, pluck out of Hollywood and have put into sports center and been a success, it's mm. probably you because oh. you have that perfect personality. And I was thinking about Kenny Main just retired after 27 years, who's also, by the way, a Seattle guy. Did you ever nicest think about nicest guy? And you realize like he has like Aaron Rodgers showing up for Marshawn Lynch. It's incredible. But had you not made it the way you've made it with your career, was there ever a thought to go into sports broadcasting and perhaps even approach SportsCenter? Uh, no, well, I'm not, I, that wasn't, I wasn't really an option in my, uh, in my brain because my brain wanted to just dance around on stage and do all that sort of thing. So it never, that was never an option. And those guys, they are operating at such a high level. And Kenny Main, when you look at the golden age of, of, I mean, when sports center really came on, when you got your Keith Obermans and your Craig Kilborns and of course, Kenny Main. And uh, Stuart Scott, Stuart Scott, those guys were, you know, crazily. I mean, they were right. I mean, they were the best there ever was. And they combined comedy and a lightness to it. And anyway, I believe me, I admired them terribly, uh, but I didn't have the encyclopedic knowledge that they do and the teleprompter reading skills that they do. I am dyslexic. So reading a teleprompter is always a bit of a. Uh, um, it's uh, an adventure. Uh, and uh, so, so I don't think I could have done that. Uh, I think eventually maybe, but no, those guys, the skill level they uh, are at is, is almost untouchable. So I admire that. One time I got asked to host ESPN uh, and I, and I was like, yes. And then it fell through because I got some job and that was very sad. Uh, so I would have loved to have done it. Wait a minute, you're dyslexic? A, I had no idea. And B, the soup must have been all teleprompter. So all teleprompter. A dyslexic comedian was hired to read 22 minutes of jokes, which when the show first started, because I had a ton of anxiety, uh, it would take us a good three to four hours to get through 22 minutes of jokes. We would just Frankenstein the show together with me stumbling and mumbling and, and screwing it up. Uh, and then after, I don't know, we were doing like a hundred shows a year. 
you, uh, dyslexic people do learn to read and my anxiety fell away uh, because I had done it so much. And then we started doing the show live, which was great because there was no option other than doing the show. And I screwed up a lot, but I, we made that part of the show and I advertised it that way. I said, hey, it, it's watch the soup live. I'm dyslexic. I don't know what's going to happen. So it ended up work. So I really uh, was able uh, as a like a baptism by fire was able to learn how to read. Uh, I'm still I still like if I get teleprompter copy, I grab it and I'm like, I need to look over this because um, it's it. I will screw it up. No doubt. I'm still a very slow reader. So I when people ask me to read a script, I'll be like, give me some time. I'm also ADHD, so I'm highly distracted. So I'm a big fan of monitoring what's trending on Twitter. And right now what's trending is the PGA championship because Brooks Kepka is leading. Are you a golf fan? I am. Oh yeah. I mean, I used to play a ton of golf and I, I, when it's on, I watch it, but I haven't kept up with the rankings and the names. When I watched it last week when that, is it, was it Korean? The Korean guy out of nowhere won. Uh, and he literally was like, oh, I started playing golf because I had some extra weight and wanted to get more steps in. I was like, dear Lord, good for him. Yeah. But I, I so I watch it, but I am not a, uh, I, I can't tell you the top 10. I mean, I know the, some of the, I know all the big names, but I can't tell you what the rankings are right now. What would be, if I could give you a dream golf experience, what would your dream golf experience be? Okay. Uh, I would wake up and have like a two hour massage. Uh, cause I, I don't, I feel like I haven't had a massage in about three and a half years, uh, since the pandemic hit, I, I would say like, I'd love to play this course. I got to play Pebble beach years ago and that was pretty amazing. Uh, I, except they had just, they had plugged the greens. So everything was perfect. And then you got your ball on the green and it was like playing at the worst municipal course you've ever been on. Cause the ball was dancing all over the place. Cause there was all these holes in the, uh, in the green, uh, boy, where would I like to, I'm trying to think of where I would play. I don't know. There's that, 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 there's that private Island off of long Island with that one course. That's supposed to be incredible. I can't believe you're not naming Augusta. I totally expected you to be like masters, Augusta round with tiger. Oh, oh, you're talking that fantasy. Yeah. Oh, dream experience. All right. Well, I would like Shakespeare to join and maybe <laughs> Batman. Uh, Spider-Man would be great, uh, to join me in the golf. Uh, I'd like to be able to hit the ball, uh, 600 yards. That would be great. Um, and then I have a laser replace my right eye so I could measure the distance perfectly. Augusta, didn't they find, I remember for the first, remember how Augusta, they wouldn't show nine of the holes. They wouldn't, sh they would always show, they would, they were, they were like, they're not picturesque enough. And I was like, that's some pretty big insecurity on your part, Augusta. Uh, that's weird. No, I would rather play uh, like, I don't know, like in the Maldives or something or go, you know, go or some, you know, course in Japan or somewhere that uh, is totally unexpected or, you know, some like Siberia or something like that. And, <laughs> Siberia. Yeah. I don't think they have golf yeah. courses in Siberia, Joel. And then just drink Chateau de Chem and uh, like Lafitte wine the entire time. Yeah, I got to play um, Band in Dunes in Oregon, and that was pretty amazing. Uh, I don't know. I did, so you can tell that 
just to get six hours off of not working sounds like a dream. That's fascinating because so I had Kamaro Usman. I don't know if you're a UFC fan, but he's the best UFC fighter on the planet right now. Wow. And here's this guy at the top of his game, but he has the Joan Rivers complex where he's worried about essentially failing every day of his life. And it's what drives him. Do you, with as busy as you are, do you have that same complex? Is there a fear that, shit, I might not get another job after this and I've got to keep hustling? Or do you yeah. feel... Oh, yeah. No, that I think a lot of actors have that. I always feel like that was probably the last time I'll make a dime. Uh, and then now the real job police are going to come and take me away. I've had that feeling since I was 15. Like, I, I remember thinking, like, I really want to act. I don't know if I can ever make a dime doing this. I love it. I'm just going to do it until I really have to be an adult. And thankfully, that didn't happen. And so, yes, I feel... I have always felt that way. And I obviously there's a bit of neuroses there, but I really enjoy it. Uh, so I don't ever I say no to nothing, basically, almost, but um, uh, to, to within reason. But yeah, I've always there's always a feeling, of, especially in entertainment, that you're hustling. I don't know what I would do if I had a job where I'd sit at a desk all day long and go home. That just seems insane to me. Um, but uh, but that, that hustling part of it is definitely like, I gotta, I gotta always prove myself. Uh, and that's fine. That's what I've been doing for 20 years here. So I, 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 the, the second that I go, Hey man, I totally got it. Don't you worry about nothing. I mean, I wish I had that confidence for that. Uh, but, and I'm sure there are a lot of actors like that, but I'm always like, Oh crap. Everyone's going to find out that I'm a fraud. Your first job was weeding. And I was like, what the fuck is weeding? So walk me through, what is weeding? Well, you're from New York and you live in a city that is, they've decided to cover every inch of it with pavement. So weeds uh, grow. I mean, they probably grow in Central Park and they have to be pulled. And uh, yeah, that was when I was a kid. But I was doing a ton of stuff. I mean, we people would hire me to be like low, mow their lawns and weed their flower beds. So I did a lot of that. Then I worked at an espresso cart I folded sweatshirts in a warehouse. I did a newspaper route. I, uh, you named it. It's kind of like now where I have 20 jobs going at once because I'm just kind of like, eh, see, I seem to have time. Uh, but uh, yeah, so I, I just did a lot of things. I did, I did a lot. That's when people always go like, so what do you like more, acting, hosting, or stand-up comedy? I'm like, what? what? I, why do I always have to make this decision? Why, why is that? Why can't I just enjoy and do them and... Uh, by some incredible mistake, they pay me for it. So when you get to LA, do you have to do the the myriad of awkward jobs just to survive while you're trying to make it in the business? Well, my wife had a job, so she really supported us. And so she's, you know, I'm, I can't, I'm in debt to her for life because she, I dragged her down to LA from Seattle and um, yeah, I was like, just give me five years. Let's see what happens. And she was game for that. And all of a sudden now it's 21 years later and we have a 16 and a 13 year old. Um, but yeah, she, so she took care. Uh, I mean, she really was the finance. She was the breadwinner. And I worked at a wine shop uh, on Larchmont, which I literally was at yesterday because I still buy wine from there. And the same owners own it. Um, so 
Uh, yeah, that was my kind of oddest job. Uh, I, and I was just doing anything. I, I never actually waited tables because uh, I think I would have been pretty bad at it. Uh, but, uh, but selling wine, I loved. And, I lo- and when I, now that I can afford wine, uh, I'm very thankful for that time learning about it. I got a commercial agent two years into being here. And that's, I got very lucky because I booked a couple commercials pretty quick. And that kind of set me off on a, uh, on a trajectory where I was going on commercial auditions three times a day. I had Howie Mandel on here a couple weeks ago, and he talked about a very pivotal moment in his life that pretty much was the, the moment where he could have just been stuck in Canada and ended up a nobody. Well, nobody's harsh, but the everyday working man but that moment propelled him to the steps that made him the icon that he is. Did you have that same pivotal moment? Was there a pivotal moment where you were at a crossroads and it could have gone either way for you? Yes. The day that I met Howie Mandel is when that happened. <laughs> I cannot believe it. Uh, no. <laughs> uh, I didn't have like a Robert Johnson met the devil uh, at the crossroads uh, moment. I'm trying to think of, I got offered for two jobs out of college, one on a sketch comedy show that was on TV in Seattle and one that paid a lot more on a, like a evening magazine type local show in Portland, which paid a lot more money, but I chose the sketch. It wasn't even like a, I wasn't even tempted to take the other one. So there wasn't a time when I went, oh man, if this, this decision changes everything, because it was always a thousand little decisions that drove me to where I am, which was like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna get a business degree. I'm not gonna, I'm just gonna pursue acting at night while I'm in college and kind of try to ignore college because I was so bad at it. There wasn't anything like where I went. So it, it really was just small decisions. There wasn't like, here's a series regular on this and here's a hosting job on this. Make the decision. There wasn't anything like that, uh, that I, that I can remember, but like, that's why with the suit people, like you said, like, that's your big break. I was like, yeah, technically it was, it just took forever. I want to talk to you about just fame in general, because I I've been privileged. I've been doing this a decade to interview pretty much the biggest comedians of all time. And it's fascinating to see the dichotomy of who turns it on in person and who kind of retreats and is more of a stage performer. And I always think to myself how hard it must be to be a famous comedian, because when the public meets you, they expect you to be Chris Rock or Dave Chappelle at all times. Has it ever been difficult because you are a famous comedian that you have to feel like you're constantly turning it on at all times when you meet people? Uh, you have, I, well, I make sure that I'm nice, which is not um, something, which is what most human beings now I feel should probably do. Look, when I was on Community and The Soup, there was a lot more eyeballs on me. Uh, and that's where I really felt it uh, when I would go into public spaces, especially in Seattle, where I was from. Uh, that's where more I felt it, but that's kind of faded away now. Uh, now it's it's not as as much. So now I feel more like kind of like, man, this is my this is my career, and this is what it is, and it's I'm so happy. Um, but 
sometimes I'm like, I know when I go on late night talk shows, that's when you, you know, you get like eight minutes and they expect, uh, you know, like to be like, all right, you don't just, it's not usually a, um, you know, an hour long conversation. Although Conan and I did 30 minutes on one of his shows a couple of months ago, which was about as fun, as much fun as I've ever had. So I don't know. Do people expect me to turn it on? Yeah, I guess a little, but I'm not one of the, I'm an extreme extrovert. So I am a golden retriever that is constantly dropping a tennis ball in front of you. And, and then I want you to throw it and I'll bring it back. So I, I am not one of those people that is, uh, has social anxiety in groups of people. I don't have, and I don't lose energy in groups. I gain energy in groups of people. That's how extroverts operate. And uh, so I, so I, I welcome it. Um, and I'm not, so it doesn't, it does, I don't, I don't shy away. So there, that's a very long answer to say. Um, you turn uh, it on. Yeah, I, well, I don't, I'm trying not to be a dick because I've seen it happen. When I see famous people going like, oh, it sucks. I'm like, I don't know. Then don't do this. Then you'll stop being famous. Uh, I'm so sorry that people are, because most of the time people just want to say hi and that they're excited that to meet you and that they like your work. And it's way better than being, you know, like a meter maid who is spat upon, right? So when I see actors complaining about that, I mean, I get it. If you're Leonardo DiCaprio, you are, you can't walk out of your house. Uh, or if you're Donald Glover, you have a hard time getting around because people are trying to fall. I get that. That could become very annoying, but when people are walking up to you just to say they're fans, I'm like, geez, Louise. And then I, when I see like celebrities go like, I'm eating, you know, like, give me a break. About your height, because the thing that struck me when I first met you is how tall you are. Are people like blown away by your height? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the soup was the great equalizer of the camera. So yes, they were always surprised that when I'm 6'4 and uh, now I don't know if they're as surprised, but um but yeah, I'm, they usually are. And on like community, all the women on that show were five, three. So uh, there was a lot of boxes we were standing on or they were, they were standing on. What do you do to elevate your life both on and off screen? I use cocaine. <laughs> it elevates everything. Uh, I just don't let the crushing dark abyss catch up with me. As long as I can, un, uh, you know, outrun their cold, dead fingers, then I feel like I'm, I'm winning. See what I did? That was such a Joel McHale twist around answer. I love it. it uh, yeah, it's fine. Just as long as yeah, so I can shut out the voices, then I feel pretty good. Dude, you've been a blast. Your humor is always hilarious. Thanks for a fun interview, man. Hopefully, I, somewhere on the scale of Conan, maybe a three out of 10 if Conan's a 10. If Conan was like a 6,000, you'd be definitely a three. <laughs> Dude, uh, no, thank you. And where did we meet in person? We did the AB. The last time I saw you was the ABC Upfront. Oh, oh yes. At the Tavern on the Green. That is correct. A rainy night at Tavern yeah. on the Green. Yeah, I remember that. My, uh, my makeup was really, really tan on my face and not on my neck. Hilariously. It looked like I had slept in the sun with you know, wearing a turtleneck. And that's where I taught. I mean, I had met Kenny Main before, but he and I really caught up there and I met his wife. He's great. 
Yeah, I met him there for the first time too. And it's funny because I was I, I was geeking out over him, but so were so many other people. And it's he just wrote an op-ed for the LA Times and he couldn't believe the reaction that he got. And you realize how much that show and those personalities touch so many millions of people. Uh, yeah, he there, there's never been anybody like him. He's remarkable. He's so funny. He could have just had a career in comedy if he had wanted. You're awesome, Joel. Everyone make sure to check out Crime Scene Kitchens Wednesdays on Fox. Wednesdays on Fox. And the 18,000 other projects Joel is either hosting or yes. will be hosting over the next decade. <laughs> yes, please. Tune into everything, folks. Everything. <laughs> Joel, you're awesome, man. Thanks for joining. Thanks for a great time, brother. Thank you so much, Arthur. Right on. I'll see you in New York, hopefully at a restaurant in the middle of a sidewalk. <laughs> Sometime soon, man. Take care. All right, folks, that was Crime Scene Kitchen star Joel McHale. Like I said, one of the funniest interviews we've recorded on this series so far. Joel, thanks for just an absolute blast of a time. Definitely kept me on my feet and good luck with the new show. And the as we joked about at the end of the interview, the 18,000 other projects I'm sure you'll have coming up. Our next guest is a famed plastic surgeon who has become a monster reality star. Dr. Terry Dubrow, everyone knows him from, of course, Ease Botched, which has now entered its seventh season. Everyone became aware of him and his wife, Heather, of course, because they were stars of The Real Housewives, which led to this other show. But they've become one of the most beloved couples in reality show history. Dr. Dubrow and his partner, Dr. Paul Nassif, now have this hit show botched, as I mentioned, season seven premiering now. And it's incredible because they take on plastic surgery mistakes that almost no one can take on or fix. And this show has become such a fan favorite because of that. Also, the chemistry between these two is just off the charts. I think you guys are going to really love the chemistry between me and Dr. Dubro. And in fact, at the end of the interview, a bit of a humble brag, he said he had been doing a whole morning of interviews and that I was his favorite. Woohoo! Thanks, Dr. Dubro. You were an absolute blast as well. But we talked about everything with his career, reality show fame, some of the crazy surgeries that he's had to go in and repair, how he built his practice, what he thinks about today's influence culture. And he's an enormous UFC fan. And with everything that's been happening with the UFC, hint, hint, we also just had Kamara Usman on the show, who's going to be coming up shortly in a future episode. We talked all about the state of the UFC, how he developed his fandom, just such great stuff. So here you guys go. Ease botched star, Dr. Dubro. All right, folks, back for season seven, and we're super excited to have on The Endless Hustle, one of the best plastic surgeons in the country, and I'm hoping someone who's going to give me freebies after this interview, Dr. <laughs> Dubro, congratulations, seven season, a botch, how exciting, the show has become a behemoth, it's super popular, this has got to be crazy. It's crazy, and this season was particularly crazy, because right before we started, we had planned to do our usual stuff, plus other things, other body parts, a woman who had a big tumor on her foot, a knee issue, all of these things. And then we started and the pandemic hit. So all of a sudden, two months into it, we put a pause, all the complications, the act ones we were following got worse. And then we restarted and it was just 
crazy. Very different season with a very different look. You actually segued to where I was going to go next, which is COVID and how it affected doctors in general. Obviously, you do well as a plastic surgeon. So when COVID hits, how does that actually affect your practice? So initially, it just put a pause on it. All elective plastic surgery was put on hold. I mean, the emergency stuff, the reconstructive stuff continued, but it was slow. Then we opened with a vengeance because no one's better at doing personal protective equipment, sterilization, disinfection than a surgeon. So we were very comfortable doing that. So we were up and running within a short period of time. And we did botched with that as the background. So one of my producers, because my production company produces this series, and one of my producers, Joe, is on this with his wife. And the reason I'm telling you this is because they sometimes join, but not often anymore because we have a busy company, but they're such fans of you that they had to come on. And it made me think about, this is how popular Botched has become. So when you look back to season one versus season seven, did you have any idea that this show would gain the traction and the popularity it has? We didn't. In fact, we were very concerned about it because if you think about it, these are patients who've been botched and they've had many surgeons try to fix them. They couldn't. And then all of a sudden we're bringing them on national television and botches on in 164 countries. What if we messed them up? What if we made them worse? And it's all over the world. Very scary. I didn't think it would work. I didn't even think it was a great idea to begin with, but here we are season seven. Take me back to like the pitching process. How does this all begin? Do you come in to E or are you pitching a sizzle and you're like, listen, the stuff I see, you can't even begin to imagine. It was that Paul came to me and he goes, look, at this point, we do almost nothing but revisional difficult plastic surgery. Why not? Because we were on Housewives. He was on Beverly Hills Housewives. I was on Orange County Housewives. So he said, why don't we talk to the producers, Evolution, and tell them about what we do and maybe that'll make an interesting show. I go, okay. So the producer said, well, let's see if you guys have chemistry because Paul and I knew each other for a long time. They put us in a room. We just looked at some pictures. We just started talking about them and they turned the cameras on. And I said, Paul, the chance of a sizzle going to series is like nothing. And then they showed us the sizzle and I go, wow, we actually have some chemistry. If you just shut up, Paul. And so it became a thing. Is there competition with the wives? Because obviously those are two of the biggest franchises for Bravo. Is there a significant competition at home? There isn't. Um, Heather has got a lot of things going on. Heather's got two new TV projects about to come out. She's got a giant podcast, Heather DeBro's World, with 150 million downloads. So Heather is super busy. She's actually in the next room right now doing her thing. She's 24-7 going full guns. I would love it if I was at your house and literally you're talking to me and she's doing an interview with another show in the other room and that's like your life. By the way, that to a degree is our life, except I spend most of my time in the operating room. <laughs> so when you decide to do the show, obviously being a doctor, there's a certain seriousness. There's a, and you guys come off beautifully. The professionalism that we see is incredible. But was there ever a concern when you're starting out that, hey, this could actually hurt our practice? Definitely. And that's a very important point because I was concerned that we had a great chance of making patients worse. Paul was concerned that I'm a pretty unplugged guy. 
he's sort of more buttoned up. And on camera, I'm the same way on camera as I am off camera. And the first couple of seasons, he was very uncomfortable with me being Terry, you know, which is making fun of him. I don't care if there's cameras around. There is, there isn't, whatever, man. Just bring it. Let's do our thing. He didn't like that. How do the patients handle it? Obviously, we're seeing in this season, just looking at some of the prep clips, I'm like, holy cow. How does, how do, A, sometimes I question, and I, you don't have to agree with me, how are people this stupid to make some of these choices? But also, B, when these things happen, I'm like, putting it on TV would blow my mind. It's funny you should say that because there are some patients who come into my practice first with disasters and I look at them and I go, you know, this would be a good case for botch because it's so severe. And they go, yeah, but I'm not really to put my, willing to put my life out there internationally like that. I think the patients who come on are so hopeless. They, 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 they've been living with this and they just can't take it anymore. They're willing to do whatever it takes and they're happy in many cases to expose their mistakes or other doctors' mistakes to the world. So it's a double-edged sword. Some will want to do it because they want to provide a cautionary tale. Others feel a little iffy about it. I'm going to put you on the spot and ask, what was maybe the one case that you encountered, whether you were able to correct it or not, where you said, this is the worst F up I've ever seen? So... I would have said previously that we had a patient who used to go to these pumping parties in the hotel room and have illegal cement injected into her face. And she had all these masses and everybody turned her down. And then I turned her down to begin with. And I thought about it. And we took her on and we actually fixed her. But this season, there's a guy, but he has no side at all. And he's 22. And he's like the strapping guy who wants to have relationships. I thought, what am I going to do with this? But I, we took it on. You've got to see this. Do you know right away? So if you see something like that or an incredibly deformed case, do you know right away, can I fix this or not? No, I sometimes just stare and look at it. And I try to see myself operating and see what the tissue might be like and where I can steal this layer from there and bring it here. And sometimes they're so complicated that the producers will send them in to me. I will take a picture and I'll say to the patient, I don't know. I don't know. I need a couple of months and I will get obsessed with it. And then I'll wake up every morning, look at the picture. And then I've done this many times, three, four, five, six weeks into it. I'll go, I think I've got it. I think I've got it. Bring them back in. And I go, okay, I think I've got it, but super dangerous, could make you worse, could end up in the hospital. You want to do this thing, but I think we've got a shot. Have you ever gotten a no to that or is the majority, let's give it a shot? They, uh, we had one no. I think we've done 150 shows now. We had one guy who came in and had no buttock at all, zero, nothing. It was just before I had invented this operation where you take the, the love handle fat and you, I learned how to rotate it down and make a buttock and I do it all the time now. So I thought, you know, you've got all this love handle fat. I theoretically could rotate it down, leaving part of it intact so it has blood supply. Lift up your buttock and put it in there. 
I've never done it, but it uses principles of plastic surgery that should work, but I've never done it. It could be a disaster. And he goes, he thought about it, thought about it. He was actually accepted to be on botch. He goes, yeah, no, he didn't want to do it. And because he'd been living with it his whole life because he was born with no butt. Since then, I've perfected that operation. I do it like in an hour now, routinely for buttock implants that have gone bad. By the way, I want to steal that line from my dating life. It could be a disaster. <laughs> By the way, that's why I told my wife the first time we had a blind date. I go, you know, you go out with me again. It could be great or it could be disaster. I don't know. <laughs> I want to talk to you about celebrity plastic surgeries because yeah. anytime you look around, we, the general public, can probably get a sense of who's had some work done. You can look at somebody and be like, I can probably pinpoint every little thing they've have done. When you look at some of the plastic surgery, do you kind of, as a doctor, assess, man, that was a crappy job that that person did? And is there a reach out that happens after that? No, there's no reach out. Well, I will tell you, it's a very good question because sometimes you will see celebrities or influencers or TikTok stars or whatever on social media and you go, wow, looks like they've had this, that, that. Then you see them in public, you go, oh, filters. Oh, I get it. They don't look anything like that. Every once in a while, I will see someone, maybe of notoriety, who has an issue. And I think to myself, that is so fixable. And they don't even know it's fixable. And I want to go, you know, but of course I don't because you don't want to be the one to suggest it. Then they have a complication. And now if it weren't for you, they would have been better. You know, you don't want to make them worse. We had uh, Tarek Al Musa from HGTV flip or flop on the show recently. And his story is just incredible. I mean, the guy pretty much faked it till he made it. And now he's you're the biggest show on the network. But we talked to him about how that show helped build his brand. You obviously already had a successful practice heading into Botched, but how did the effect of Botched actually enhance the, the practice? So it changed my practice. I mean, in, in 2003 and four, I did a TV show called The Swan, which was a big reality show on Fox after American Idol. So that really expanded my practice, but Botched changed my practice to where People fly in from all over the world. It's on in 164 countries. And I do almost 85% revisional, difficult, impossible plastic surgery. So it changed the nature and structure of my practice. But I was, I, has it made me busier? You know, one thing about being a plastic surgeon, you could only do one patient at a time. So I was always busy. But the type of patients I do are completely different now. I want to take you all the way back to med school. When do you decide? Because you can pretty much go any area of medicine you want to go. You're obviously a brilliant dude. When do you decide I'm going to do plastic surgery? So I went to med school to be a heart surgeon. I had my, my I, heart set on that. Then in the second year of med school, med school is four years, this plastic surgeon walks in and he goes, okay, turn off the lights. It's when these show slides. And he goes, 
I'm going to tell you about the last true renaissance field of medicine. It's called plastic and reconstructive surgery. And he showed slides from burn reconstruction, from accident victims, from cosmetic surgery, from replantation of digits that have been cut off. And we, I just went, this truly is the last field in medicine, the last renaissance field. So I walked up to him, followed him down the hall. And I go, okay do you do research in a lab? And he kind of takes me to his laboratory. I ran his lab at UCLA for seven years. I published 27 papers with him in major articles, in major journals. And that was it. I was going to be a plastic and reconstructive surgeon. How hard is it to actually get a practice off the ground when you're starting out? I think it's hard because plastic surgeons are a dime a dozen. They're everywhere. And what's weird in our particular country is that Anyone can call themselves a cosmetic surgeon. You literally can be a radiologist on a Friday, board certified in radiology, take a weekend course in cosmetic surgery, and Monday morning, you're a cosmetic surgeon. So 50% of the cosmetic surgery in this country is done by non-plastic surgeons. So they're everywhere. There's a lot of good work being done and a lot of not so great stuff being done. Very, very competitive. I want to talk to you about regionality. So I'm originally from Philadelphia. I currently live in New York. You're obviously in LA. But if you were to rank the top four or five cities by what I would call best plastic surgery appearance, what would you rank city by city? I would say, I think New York's really good. New York has a light touch. So the plastic surgery that's being done in New York is softer. I would say LA now, now, has a much better look. I say Dallas, except for, you know, the bigger is better, go big or go home kind of thing. Dallas plastic surgeons are really good. I think can get a little funky in Florida. Florida <laughs> pushes the envelope and they have a lot of complications. Obviously brilliant plastic surgeons everywhere, but that's how I would rank things. What about your popularity? Because for you and Heather, these shows are so popular. What's it like when you're on the streets, you're at restaurants, are people just abusing you guys for pictures? How crazy does it all get? It, you know what? Reality TV popularity is, and I heard about this before I did, we were on the Housewives together, and before I did the Swan, they call it the sweet fame. People are actually, they feel like they know you because you're basically you on TV. You know, I'm no different on off or on TV. I don't care if there's cameras there. So people are like, hey, Terry. And I go, hey, man, how are you? And so it's not like we're these A-list actors that get treated, you know, ooh, where people are lining up. Yeah, people take want to take pictures with us. But they're sort of like, it's like being kind of popular in high school. You know, hey, man, hey, dude, hey, how are you doing? It's like, everybody's cool. So it's a really nice kind of popularity. It's always fascinating when you see A-list actors and they'll get asked questions somewhere in a junket or wherever and they'll be like, what shows are you watching? Like you'll have Jennifer Lawrence who is like Larry David's my all-time crush. But you'll always hear reality TV shows as the answer. So has there been one A-list actor that you found out was a fan of yours that absolutely blew your mind? Jennifer Aniston said she was obsessed with botch at one point and um kelly region uh, kelly ripa discovered botch like in the fourth season she, she called it the greatest 
program in the history of television. I went, what? And so, yeah, it surprises me who's interested in botched and who's not. And, you know, we do have celebrities come into our practice. Obviously, we don't talk about them. Um, but the ones who come in, oh, I went to an Angels baseball game and I'm watching this major home run hitter. And the same thing happens at a lake, happened to Laker game. And like these major athletes walk over and I go, is this dude walking over to me? And he goes, hey man, big fan, big fan. And you just go, it's so weird. <laughs> but you know, we're like regular people. So they, they say hi, like everybody else does. You Are know? you a big sports guy? I'm not, which is weird. I'm not a big sports guy, but you know, the community I live in, tons and tons of baseball players here. And Kobe used to live down the street from us. So we knew him and, uh, you know, Vanessa very well. So when you look at the future of this show, if you were to kind of plot it out like a surgery, what would you like to see in season eight, season 12? Would you like to have 10 botched? What would you want? I'd like to see the show go 10 seasons. And I'll tell you why. 10 Every season seems fresh. Every story is surprising. You would think that there's only a limited number of noses and breasts and butts and tummies, but yet everyone has a unique background. And we have this expression, botched always deliver. Every story is unique. And so at the end of the season, we go, wow, that was a bizarre, different, interesting season. So I think we have at least three left in us. I don't know whether the audience will feel that way, but I will tell you this season, and we say this every season, this season, partly because of the pandemic, partly because of the patient mix we chose, this is a unique look. And the producers made a different show this season. One of my favorite all-time TV shows is Nip Talk. Yeah. So have you watched Nip Talk? And I want to know, were they getting it right? Obviously the life of the surgeons, those guys were animals, but is that kind of what, if you're a single plastic surgeon, what it could be like? And were they accurate with the procedures? I'll tell you, sir, I couldn't watch. I watched Nip Tuck. I couldn't watch it because it was so ridiculously unrealistic. The first season of ER was so wrong medically that I used to watch it and go, are you kidding me? And then by season three, it was like, whoa, they're using the right terminology. They've got the right sensibility. But Nip Tuck was a farce with, you know, cocaine stuffed in breast implants, put in patients and flying over this country. And the way they did the surgery, it was so ridiculous. I, it was, no, it was fun, but uh -uh, I could barely watch it. Is, so I'm a former financial advisor and I always describe, I was in my twenties when I was advisor, I'm going to be 43 on Monday. So I'm long, long distance away from that. But it was like the Wolf of Wall Street, the lifestyle. For a young plastic surgeon, is it kind of like what we saw in Nip Tuck? Are they just, is it high flying kind of Wolf of Wall Street, but in the plastic surgery world? Okay. I will tell you, generally speaking, plastic surgeons are, start out as a very conservative bunch because it's really competitive to get into a plastic surgery program for medical school. I had to do seven years of general surgery. I was chief resident of trauma. Then I did plastic surgery. So your first few years, you're very much doctor man, very buttoned up, but plastic surgeons change and they change pretty quickly. And 
a lot of that crazy single life style lifestyle you see on TV, there are plastic surgeons who live that lifestyle. You know, I'm a certified expert for the California Medical Board. And often, unfortunately, those are the guys that come before the medical board. And we go, dude, what were you thinking? <laughs> <laughs> They're like showing up for surgery after partying like in Hollywood in the hills the night before. By the way, worse than that, way worse than that. Um, I want to talk to you about sports because my producer actually just chatted me a question and it's a really great question. When we see like MMA fighters, boxers, hockey players, they can, they're, they're, they can be just altered because of the physicality of their sport. What's the process for getting them back to kind of the norm and the starting point? We have a couple of those this season. We have a couple people who've been really down. I'm a big MMA fan. I love the UFC and following it for a long time. It's a lot of the damage that they have is, of course, scar tissue, but it's changed the, the basic structures of the layers of, for example, the nose or the face. And once you start to alter the solid structures, the cartilage, the bone, it gets very difficult to make changes that will stay changed and look normal. But at by this point, season seven, we have tricks. We have tricks that no one else taught us. The universe taught us. We always say that botched, I went to the botched school of plastic surgery because you get good at what you do all the time. So it forced you I always say, look, if you're a tennis player, you're the best in the world on grass and you go on play, you're going to be beaten by a college player if you never played on clay. Well, if you're not used to doing this kind of impossible scarified plastic surgery, it's not for you. But if that's where you cut your teeth and what you grew up on, like I did, you get really good at it. But having said that, sports injuries and changes are more a little bit more difficult to make but we've got it pretty much wired now i love that you're an mma fan because i'm a huge ufc guy but there's another league and i'm dying to know if you've had a chance to watch it i've become an enormous fan of the bare knuckle fighting championship the bkfc have you had a chance to see that and it, it, it's fist versus gloves so they're actually fighting open fisted or excuse me um without gloves have you had a chance to see it at all i haven't but what do they do about I mean, really? No gloves at all? What do you have about broken hands? Isn't, it, isn't the, the, those small gloves designed to prevent breaking the, the, the fingers and stuff? Dr. Dubro, it is the coolest league. I mean, it's, it's pure action. That's why when you said you're an MMA guy, I'm like, you've got to watch BKFC. It is really? Oh, it's so good. Those, those guys and girls, they go to war. It's pure action. And yeah, it is fully open no gloves i gotta watch that yeah i'm gonna watch that what do you think about what we're seeing with what the paul brothers are doing and now getting floyd mayweather arguably the greatest of all time to participate what are your thoughts around this whole thing i mean on the one hand you know i don't like when non-plastic surgeons do cosmetic surgery okay so it bugs me because it takes away the purity of the sport and it makes it a spectacle and it makes it about money and you know instagram but it is i you know it's a traffic accident i can't look away from i really want to see how he does against floyd mayweather you know but did you see how pissed off um cormier daniel cormier cormier do you see him call out 
Yeah. You sit down. You shut up. I, I, you know, I get it. He, you know, they went through this pure career where they were champions and they're making kind of a farce out of it. I, it, for me, I'd be concerned that the whole thing is going to jump the shark. Let's face it. It makes yep. a joke out of where they've come because it's so good and it's so pure in so many ways, but it's entertaining. It is huge. I mean, I can't wait to see the, the Mayweather Jake Paul thing. Right. Yeah. It's well, it's, he's fighting Logan Paul, but what different Logan Paul? Yeah. What Jake, different? Jake, Jake's the one who stole the hat. What, it, it doesn't make a difference. He, he actually offered to fight both of them in one night, which, you know, obviously no one sells a fight better than Floyd. But to see what these brothers have done to even get to this point is mind boggling to me. I'd like to see Jake uh, Logan Paul fight Jake Paul. <laughs> I guess Logan would beat him up. He's bigger, right? Yeah, but they're both. I mean, listen, despite, I, I think you nailed it, which is, it's like you train your whole life to be good at a craft. And then to see people who have been training for four years or three years or whatever the time frame do it, it's, it, it hurts your feelings to a certain degree. I felt terrible for Ben Askren because that guy's a stud, you know? And so, and he's not a puncher. You know, so boy, he get knocked out badly. I, did you watch it? I did. I'm obsessed with all this. I mean, I live and breathe this. I talk to people like you every day. So it's like I live and breathe this. But I look at it from a marketing perspective and I'm just like, wow, what a world we live in. It's kind of genius. It really is. You brought up TikTok and influencers. Obviously, there is a, a, a new world with social media. And it's predicated on beauty and putting out the perfect image. What do you think? Obviously, your job is to make people look more beautiful and you do a lot to correct. But what do you think about this image that we've created with society where people feel the need to have to portray themselves as perfect? I don't love it. I think it's difficult because, you know, the filters give an unrealistic, idealized version of what people look like. And it's not only giving other people sort of insecurities, it even gives the person using the filter insecurities because once they get to a certain level of popularity and people start to recognize them, they realize, I don't actually look like that. You know, they're almost catfishing everybody, right? So that drives them into plastic surgeon's office. I can't tell you how many consults I've had where they go, I need to look like this, which is them with a filter. And I go, uh, okay, why don't you dial back the filter, maybe? Because you can't really do it. Surgery doesn't really do that, you know? So I don't love it. I don't love the way it's driving people to plastic surgeon's office, trying to make changes that are impossible to make. One of the reasons that we started the show was to talk to successful people like you about how they were able to achieve their success. What do you do in both your personal and professional life to elevate yourself? What I do is I've learned, first of all, I use a lot of exercise. I think exercise always grounds me, always clears out the toxins from all those insecurities and paranoias and inability to sleep, all the things that distracts you. I'm really all about what I call getting in the flow. You have to figure out how you can get your blinders on and focus on the things that are important to you and not let the nonsense and the little small stuff distract you. So whatever it takes for you as an individual to learn how to focus, 
get in the flow, put those blinders on and be sort of this, this one-minded individual that goes for your goals. That's what you need to do, whether it's exercise, whether it's meditation, whether it's, you know, your religion or whatever it is, get those blinders on and focus on the goal like nothing else matters. That was my secret to success. Dr. Dubro, you are the absolute man. Don't think I wasn't joking about those freebies. I may just show up <laughs> at your office. Congratulations. Congratulations, season seven of Botch. What I love about your show is it's not just some spectacle. You're actually helping people and that's freaking awesome. And you're incredibly entertaining as a person outside of being a good doctor. So thank you. Thank you very much. And by the way, I've been doing interviews all morning. This is probably the most, this is the most entertaining and intuitive, insightful interview I've done. So thank you very much for you. You say that to all the boys and girls. I don't. I do not. I but maybe it. I will, because it's probably a good idea to leave my, to leave them with that. So maybe I will. Start the interview, be like, this is already the best. Don't ask me <laughs> any hard questions. <laughs> That's a good idea. Thanks, Dr. Dubro. Good luck and thank you. Thank you. I'll see you soon. Bye. Take care. All right, folks, that was Botched Star, Dr. Terry Dubro. You can catch Botched every Tuesday at 9 p.m. Eastern on E. Great show, season seven, monster hit. And yes, Dr. Dubro, you were my favorite interview of the morning, too. So thanks for a great time. Everyone make sure to catch Botched. Everyone loves that show. Our final guest of episode 61 has become one of the most respected voices in the NFL. Mike Tannenbaum was the general manager of the New York Jets and built a perennial winner there. He then migrated to the Miami Dolphins, where he took over that franchise and helped build it into a success as well. He's now become one of the favorite voices around the NFL for ESPN and does coverage for them of free agency, the draft, pretty much everything. We had an incredible conversation with him about what life is like as a GM in the NFL and his transition to broadcasting. He also talked about some great, great stories, one of which, and I don't want to spoil it, but he was the GM for the Jets when they recruited Brett Favre, and he talked all about the inside story of how he got Brett to sign with the Jets. So cool. He talked about the evaluation process as a GM, what it takes to build a successful franchise, how he got into it himself, and also, and I want to really stress this, he has this incredible organization called the 33rd, and it's essentially a think tank that gets together once a week of some of the brightest, most experienced, and most revered minds in NFL history. And he's created this think tank with them. It's just incredible. So everybody's got to go check out the 33rd. Tannenbaum, of course, is on ESPN pretty much every morning when I turn it on. And I really love talking to him because we get the inside mind of what it takes to be successful in the NFL. And as fans, and I'm a longtime New York Giants fan, as you guys probably know, as a fan myself, you sometimes sit there and question, why is the team making this decision? Or don't they think this way? And Tannenbaum gives us a great inside look into how the minds work running an NFL franchise. So here you go. ESPN's Mike Tannenbaum. All right, so great day on the Endless Hustle as we invite on former NFL general manager turned ESPN front office insider, 
and the pride of Needham, Massachusetts, Mike Tannenbaum. Mike, thanks so much for joining the show. Great, great being with you guys. Yeah. Are you, you don't still have a presence in Needham, do you? Because I'm a Topsfield, Massachusetts guy. Oh, well, well done. I, I'm, there's nobody who's a bigger supporter of Needham, Mass than I am. So a lot of friends, family in the area. Uh, we're in South Florida, but um, I'd rather be in jail in Needham than the mayor of some other towns in our country. So with my NFL career, I've moved around quite a bit and uh, I'll take Needham. You can take everything else. Excellent. I want to start off with my most important question of the day. You know, the combine just took place and it was the first year where I believe there wasn't a story about the weird interview questions teams ask players. Do you find your mom attractive? Or are you afraid of clowns? As a guy who's called the shots in two organizations, who's coming up with these questions and are there any notable ones that you remember? Yeah, you know, it's funny you say that. So I'm, if my wife uh, is listening or listens, I am a relentless question asker. I, I can't stand going out to dinner with people like, you know, like your parents and, you know, the people you see all the time and you have the same boring conversation. So I'm always bringing like questions because I think it's a great way to get to know people, even people that, you know, you love and you're with all the time. So um, I actually um, hired like a franchise sports psychologist at the Jets. Like she's now, she was with the Navy SEAL. She's now with an NBA team. Like it was her and then everybody else. And I can say her name, Dr. Sarah Hickman. She was the best of the best. And one of the responsibilities I gave her was to come up with questions to ask. And one of the many questions that I loved if we were having dinner over an emergency set of appetizers is who do you call when you have a bad day? And there was a player when you're coming out that had multiple DUIs and she gave us about a dozen questions to ask. And one of the questions we asked this player was, who do you call when you have a bad day? And he said, nobody. And that, along with some other information, she said, you know, this player is a high risk to have another DUI. We passed on the player. He went on to have, unfortunately for him, alcohol problems in his career. And the reason I bring that up is players are so well prepared for the combine and the questions that you really try to get them off the script. So for example, like, Tell us something that you've worked really hard at in your career, but were unable to accomplish. What's one nice thing you've done for somebody in the last seven days? What's one thing you would change about yourself? If you could have three people at your dinner table, dead or alive, who would it be? Um, and it's really great ways to get to know people. And as Coach Belichick would say in, in draft meeting, guys, which is when they have more time and money in pro football and they're an asshole in college, they're just going to be a bigger asshole. And while you guys may not be on the field coaching them, and I am, let's try not to coach assholes. I'm always fascinated, Mike, with film versus combine results. Every year with the combine, you have that DK Metcalf standout where the guy just is off the charts with measurements, but maybe didn't bring it on the field in the film. As a GM, how much stock goes into what we see at the combine and this guy is a physical animal versus production on the field during college. Yeah, Arthur, it's, um, I mean, like some of the biggest mistakes when you like rely too much on, um, you know, what happens at the combine. So one of the guys I studied quite a bit in my career was a gentleman named Charlie Casserly. He was a general manager for a couple of different teams. And, and he said it the best, which was, he's like, if you just did actually have the draft the day after the college regular season ended, you would get the best results. And we actually track that. Where like where were our grades in December? Where were they in February before the combine? And then where they wind up, you know, for your final grade. And over like a long period of time, 
more times than not your best grade, your most accurate grade is from how they play football. Now, you want all information. And I think what happens is, and, and this would be a fascinating like psychological study is like you tend, and we're all human, but you tend to overweight the most recent information. So that's just something you gotta be really, really careful of. And um, you have to make sure that you take it in the proper context. And again, like looking back on my career, those were you know, some of the mistakes I made. The draft is such a crapshoot. No matter how much you guys study, no matter how well you grade out, we all see it. 50% of draft picks or more are busts. Who is one guy in the history of your career when you were a GM that you look back and you were like, this is going to be a can't-miss prospect, but he missed? Anthony Schlegel, who's now the uh, strength and conditioning coach for the Jacksonville Jaguars. He was a productive Went, started off at the Air Force Academy, transferred to Ohio State, was a captain, maybe like the greatest guy ever, like like a guy's guy, um, outgoing, held people accountable, terrific, terrific college player. He was just uber productive based on like instincts and hustle and his lack of athleticism really translated um, once he got to the uh, NFL level and we just totally missed it. And, uh, you know, he, he was... He didn't, he didn't last very long. What is the biggest unforeseen challenges that for players either on or off the field coming from college to the pro? You know, I think it's, um, this sounds so fundamental, but for a lot of them, it's their first job. You know, I had a coach one time put it best. It's like, you know, Matt, if you graduated from college and someone just picked you up and put you in the middle of China and said, go, you know, it's going to take you a minute to be at your best because learning a playbook is learning a new language. So you're moving for the first time. You may have a support system. You may not. Um, if you're an early pick, you have money for the first time. And there's just, you know, there's a lot of things like you got to figure out like how to get to the facility, how to pay a bill, how to study, how to hydrate. You know, you're going against pros that have done it for, you know, whatever, four to eight years. And they have routines. They know their body. They know how to recover. They know how to eat. They know when it's okay to drink. They know when it's how to recover. Like all those things like matter because the bandwidth between players is so, so small. So many of these guys are animals in college. I mean, you can't be. When you're in Ohio State, you're God there if you're a productive player or an All-American. How do, are they too much of a party animal? Is there a substance abuse issue? How do you guys get the dirt on these guys to really understand if they're going to end up becoming someone like Johnny Manziel? Yeah, boy, that's, we can talk about that for the next two hours. Um, you, you really rely on, you know, world-class experts, sports psychologists, your security department. Um, and I, th like, one of the things I, I think really has served me well is the whole fundamental notion of who you are in life is how you treat somebody that can't help you. And, you know, the more that's someone's true character, I really believe in that. And look, things are going to happen in people's lives, like, you know, I've had highs and lows, you know, might happen to be professionally well-documented because of, you know, what I've done, but, you know, people have good days and bad days and you want to, to the extent you can provide the infrastructure and sort of the support system. So when players hit those bumps in the road, you know, you can help them. Mike, you were the youngest GM in the league at age 36. When that happened and that meteoric rise happened, were you as, enthralled by that as like the outside world were you able to stop and kind of smell the roses there no and and i still don't like you know that's definitely like 
something I constantly work on. Like, I think ambition to be candid is a blessing and a curse because I, like, I wake up every day feeling like I got a million miles to go. And it was just kind of a weird dynamic. So like, there's probably some context here, but you know, I was really fortunate to work for coach Parcells and Belichick and coach Parcells left the jets. I was whatever, 31. And they brought in a guy named Terry Bradway. And 20 years later, Terry and I are still incredibly close friends. He was a GM. Then I was GM. I went to Miami. I hired one person outside the building was Terry. When they brought Terry in to be our GM, I was pissed. I was like, what's going on here? Like, I'm ready. Like, I'm better than he is. I'm smarter than he is. Like, there's nobody better for this job. So, and I think about, like, I'm a moron. Like, I couldn't believe I was actually thinking that. And um, so what I did was for, I was the assistant GM for five years before I became GM. I actually, like, wrote quite a bit about, like, what I would do. And a lot of times it was, hey, we, we made a decision to do X, but we should have maybe thought to do Y. And in my notes, I made a lot of mistakes. And I thought to myself, oh, my God. I am so lucky that I'm making these mistakes in my notepad. Like that could have been my, you know, that could have been me out in front making these mistakes. So, and I, I tell people that all the time, like you really got to invest in yourself. And there's people out probably listening to this podcast that want to be jamming it. I would tell you like, write, write down your notes this year. Like, do you think Zach Wilson or Justin Fields or Mac Jones, whoever it may be. And then let's see how it plays out. And we'll all learn something from that experience. So while there's only, you know, 32 active GMs, if that's something you really want to do, you know, start investing in the process yourself. You'd mentioned head coach GM relationship. I'm so fascinated by that because Hugh Jackson, there's a clip floating around today where Hugh's telling a story when he was with Cleveland about how in 2000 and I think 16 or 17, they were deciding between Miles Garrett or Mitchell Trubisky. And Hugh was all about an all-in on Miles, but there were people in the franchise who wanted to go the Mitchell route. And obviously we can see how each player turned out. When you're in that process, and he also mentioned, by the way, that he didn't find out till a day before the draft that the franchise was going with Miles. And he was like, what's going on here? Like, I should have more headway here. What's that relationship like? And what should it be like between the GM and the head coach? And what happens when there's a disconnect like that? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, so I, I had two different experiences in my career. At the Jets for seven years, I had final say on everything. And the few times we had disagreements, I always said, like, let the data and the facts drive us to where we want to go. Um, and sometimes that wasn't easy, like taking DeBrickershaw Ferguson in, in my first draft at tackle. Like, clearly there were a lot of people in the building that didn't want to do that. And we just kept talking it through. And, you know, that was a decision that, we wound up making and turned out to be a great decision in Miami. I didn't have final say, which ironically was something that I had told the owner when I got there, like we should, you know, give the final say to the head coach. That dynamic's very different because you're really now like more in a support system, even though I had the title of running football operations. Um, but it's really like a marriage and it's, it's one that has to be based on trust communication. And to the extent that you do have disagreements, you really have to just go back to the data. And one thing I will tell you that's really hard, in both situations, I was very involved with negotiations and cap management. That's very, very hard because when you're doing a deal, and I felt like over time it got harder and harder. You know, if you're starting off with a massive sort of like pie, it kept getting smaller and smaller. And then you have a salary cap, you have a cash budget, you have a sense of where the owner wants to be on the deal. You have a sense of where the head coach wants to be. Uh, in my case, in Miami, I had a general manager 
he had his thoughts. And then of course you have the agent and, you know, to try to thread the needle with all those constituents. Like I was like, my gosh, I think I'm ready to go and negotiate, you know, the Middle East peace process. Like, you know, it's a lot easier than doing this. What are those internal battles like when you're going between different players and you've got factions inside that one, one player and other factions in one another? How aggressive are those battles? Yeah, I felt like that was one of my really uh, like strong skills because I always, Arthur, defined the job as being the point guard of information. And if you let like data and information drive decisions, it, it kind of takes, and it's hard like because coaches get so emotionally invested in some players. But if you're like, look, we're extending ourselves on a wide receiver and it's foolish, fellas, like there's 15 wide receivers in the first three rounds of the draft, like let this guy go. It's okay. And like, it's easy for me to sit here and say that now because I was as competitive as anybody. I'm like, okay, it's only another, you know, 300,000. We thought it'd be X. It's 300,000 more, you know, on an $80 million cap where now it's, you know, a $200 million cap. Shame on us if we can't find 300 grand. And you can almost like talk yourself into anything with that mindset. So you almost have to like check yourself as well. Mike, I know you're high on Zach Wilson, but Brandon Marshall recently said that the Jets should pick Justin Fields at number two because he can handle the New York media. I'm not sure if you saw that. Is there any substance to this? And how big of a challenge is the New York media to the equilibrium of the team and the front office? Yeah, I love Brandon, but he should be picking quarterbacks. Um, <laughs> so, look, it's, it, it's hard. You know, I lived it. I was there 16 years, you know, head coach, GM, quarterback, owner, like, I mean, there's nothing like it. I mean, the highs are so high and there's nothing like it. And the lows are, are brutal. I, I, I don't know how else to say it. Zach Wilson has a much higher ceiling than those other quarterbacks. It's not close. And you want to put the right infrastructure around him to be successful. He's going to stub his toe. He's going to throw three picks and they're going to have him on the back page. And it's going to be brutal. Um, his mental toughness will be questioned, but if you believe in the long-term and again, this is like, what's really hard. Like Joe Douglas went from telling, sitting here, telling you if player A is better than player B and deservedly. So he's now the GM, you know, his job now is very much different. He's running an organization. He has to make sure that they got the right psychologist on staff and the right nutritionist and the right strength coach and the right player development person. And they have to work really hard to know what support systems coming with Zach to the New York area. And you know, what's going to be like when he throws those three picks. Like that's what is the differentiation, in my opinion, between like a winning organization and one that falls short. So I'm a lifelong Giants fan and I love Danny Dimes. Absolutely love him. But as a GM, is there a point because he hasn't necessarily met the expectations, although there are flashes of it, of what he can become. At what point as a GM, do you kind of take a look and say, this guy is either going to become something or we've got to cut bait? Yeah, you know, there's nothing magical about that, Arthur. Um, I wish there was, um, but there isn't. So you you, you kind of know it. Um, you know, Coach Parcells, who had a big impact in my life, my career, talked about Tom Landry always having this three-year rule with, you know, young players. But I think Daniel Jones' trajectory is, is a good one. It's a positive one. I don't know if you want to put an artificial deadline. I think he has to play much better, I think. They've done a great job of putting some really good players around him, like Kenny Galladay, Saquon, obviously he's coming back. Um, I think the offensive line should be a lot better. And I think as long as you're seeing progress, you know, that's somebody that, you know, they should stay with. Going back to the draft, obviously with first rounders, 
your job is these guys have got to plug in and be starters or all pros at some point. Then you start getting into the second, third, fourth, and so on rounds. Value picking is such an art. How tough is it to find those gems, those this hidden diamonds in the rough, and how much scouting has to go into finding those guys? I think it comes back to character. And again, it's I'm kind of contradicting myself because like if we go back to Anthony Schlegel, his character was off the charts, but he wasn't good enough. So I think it's a combination of like good players that were there's a battery things, position change, injury, off the field issues, like things happen, they transferred. Um, that that's really what the most important, like you want to, you want to get good players that are good people that maybe were under the radar for one of those reasons, and then try to give them a reasonable position and be, you know, like a path for them to be successful. You were a personal assistant for the Browns in 95. I think that was Belichick's last season. I know you were just in your mid twenties, but how would you compare Belichick's approach then versus now? And as a former GM yourself, can you speak to what's involved in juggling the GM and head coach? Yeah, I don't think he's changed at all. I mean, you know, and here's what's really fascinating is that shows you how bad the hire. I wrote a piece about this. Shows you how bad the NFL hiring process is. So Bill Belichick, look, has he evolved? Has he learned? Of course he has. But to his core, like he hired me. I I just graduated from law school. I was 26 years old. I was driving people to the airport, but he really wanted me to do research on contracts. (laughs) And He's just a really smart, very like methodical guy. That's very, very thoughtful. That hasn't changed. And um, when he got to the Jets, he was not even, he went to the Patriots for a year, went to the Jets and he had two interviews in three years, one with the Chiefs, one with the Raiders. And at, everyone at the rate, we knew he wasn't getting the job at the Raiders because Al Davis never hired a defensive coach. He always hired an offensive coach. So he just really wanted to pick Belichick's brain. Um, and the only reason the Patriots hired him was that 96 season where Kraft got to know Belichick. And it shows you how flawed the system is. Like, this guy may go down as the greatest coach in the history of our game. Like, literally, like, maybe the best ever. And in three years, only had two interviews. Like, think about how flawed that is. Like, you know, you think about, like, you know, you can make an argument right now, like, should Cincinnati, right? Would the Cincinnati Bengals give up 10 first-round picks for Bill Belichick? I don't know. Maybe they should. But the point being is, like, Here's a guy that anybody could have hired and he only had two interviews and went 0 for 2 in those interviews, FYI. Um, And I think it's such a – it says so much about how flawed our system is in hiring coaches. You talked, Mike, about the highs and lows of what it's like being a GM. I want to actually touch on the lows. Obviously, much of being a GM is tied to who you draft, and especially when you draft a quarterback high at the draft. What are those lows actually like? Or is, are they sleepless nights when, especially when you're in New York and the press is battering you, what is it personally that you have to go through during those lows? Like for me, it's like serving others. So you park your car, like with, you know, everybody and you, you, you look around, you're like, wow, like a lot of people are depending on you, like not to F this up, you know, like, and like, when you have that mindset, you know, it's like the saying, like, you know, generals in the army, don't eat first, they eat last. And there's so many people that are counting on you to do like good work. Like you really want to like either get it right or die trying. Like you don't want to be the one that's like out on the golf course or taking shortcuts. And, you know, of all the things I would tell you, like I'm as proud of that just in terms of like when Adam Gase got the job at the Jets and um, we're leaving Miami, 
And I'm like, oh, you're gonna love the strength coach. He's this, and you're gonna love the equipment guy and the IT guy. And there was probably like eight people I had hired in 06 that kind of like lived through all the changes in that organization. I was really proud of it, but those are people that are battle tested that are there in the lows. And um, it's really hard because you just, you don't want to let others down. Um, at least that's what I kept going back to. There's this new movement of player empowerment where players are becoming more comfortable with requesting trades, contracts be damned, whether it's as blatant as say a Le'Veon Bell or just kind of a clever usage of social media. I think it's become more ubiquitous in the NFL and beyond. How do you view this with your GM cap while also considering kind of the incentives of the players? Yeah, I think it puts more emphasis guys on like organizations um, in terms of like making them happy and fulfilled, not only on, but off the field. I think it puts a lot of uh, sort of like emphasis and responsibility on the owner. So the Cal McNairs of the world and, you know, some of the places we've seen like bumps in the road, like go solve it and go, go make your organization the greatest place where nobody would ever want to leave for, you know, either reason on the field or off the field. You talked about the emotional investment in a player as a GM on the other end, when you have to say goodbye to a player and you're at that point, but you, there's an emotional connection. Maybe you've developed a friendship, your family, your friends, whatever it is. How hard is it to have to make that decision and say goodbye to a player and potentially either end their career or force them into retirement? I mean, that I can't even imagine how stressful that has to be. Yeah, yeah worst part of the job and even harder to fire a coach um, for, for the very same reason. And these are people that you spill blood with. And um, it's really, really hard, by far the worst part about the job. Was there, if you look back on your career, what was maybe the hardest one that you had to go through? Uh, when Coach Bangino was fired, you know, Eric, you know, we're still good friends to this day. Um, we started in Cleveland together, got married three weeks apart, had kids the same age. Um, and his time at the Jets ended before mine. And um, it was, uh, that was a really difficult time for me. You, like I said, you were the youngest GM in the league at one point with the Jets, made three playoff appearances. And then the Tebow season kind of went sideways and you were let go. The Jets had one winning season since, I believe. Uh, are you vindicated at all in any sense, or are you just kind of feel bad for your old team? You know, I, I'm always about, like, you know, there's a great expression, those who know, know. And, um, you know, feel just as good about my experience in Miami and taking that team for the playoffs for the first time under the owner, the current owner there, and all the great things we got done there. Um, and at the Jets, look, we had a great run. We got the two championship games. We had some really, really good teams, but really much more fundamental than that is uh, the people. And like I said, like it was probably years later, you know, I would say like two things were like really stood out. Like one was like that comment I made to Adam Gase, like, Hey, let me tell you about like the building. And it's the buildings are always about the people um, that really like stood with me. And um, the first time we went to the playoffs, um, like one of the guys that like is a hero in my life, got a, I look up to quite a bit as a guy named Ron Wolf. He's uh, in the Hall of Fame. He's a Hall of Fame GM. And I'm driving home. And I can tell you exactly where I was. He called me. He's like, hey, you know, you got your team to the playoffs. He's like, people don't understand how hard that is to be running an NFL team and have success. And you did it. And like to be validated by my peers probably meant as much to me as anything else. Before we got started, we mentioned a couple guys that are always fun for stories. 
the first one is Tim Tebow. And your response was, I have a great Tebow story. So run with it. So we trained for Tim and he flies in and he flies in with, you know, some people like his agent and some, you know, close friends of his. And um, the trade just happens to go down the day that my mom was in town. So what happened was like, we went out for dinner. And so it was my wife, my kids, and we wanted to make it like very like casual and laid back. I mean, you know, this was at the height of his popularity. We had a really good team. It's New York. Like it, I knew it was going to be pretty loud. So I was trying to do the opposite, which was just try to make him feel comfortable. Like we're all just like normal, nice people. So we had the trainer because he was finishing up Tim's physical and the trainer's family. So all in there was probably, I don't know, like 10 or 12 of us. So one of the things that we do in our house is you have to earn your dessert eligibility. You have to do one nice thing for somebody else to earn your dessert. So I, I was like, you know, this is going to be a great icebreaker. We're going to go around the table. Everyone's going to have to say, you know, what's the one nice thing they did today so they could be dessert eligible. And that'd be a great way to get the conversation going. So, you know, my mom is a very modest means happens just to be in town, you know, so she's definitely like a little bit like taken back by the, all the circumstances. So I'm like, all right, Bob, you're going first. Like, you know, why should you get dessert? So she's like, you know, I was in the office yesterday and I bought lunch for one of my coworkers. I'm like, that's great, mom. Like that's, you know, you are now dessert eligible. And like, it's still very quiet, very awkward. And so, you know, a couple other people go along and then it gets to Tim's turn. I'm like, Tim, like, what's one nice thing that you've done for somebody else? And he goes, well, we're building a pediatric cancer center. We're working on like sex slavery in Europe and like four other like institutions that are building. I'm like, you know what, Tim, congratulations. You know, you get the chocolate chip cookie and mom, like the turkey sandwich you bought yesterday never looked so bad. And the juxtaposition of Marilyn Tannenbaum from Needham, Massachusetts, buying a turkey sandwich in Waltham where she worked compared to Tim, who's like building pediatric cancer centers all over the world was just an unbelievable juxtaposition that it's a moment I will never forget. Oh my God. He truly is Jesus. I think he was. Yeah, you know, he, he's, it was, but it was just so funny. Like Tim, all you had to do is hold the door open for somebody. Like we're just talking about dessert <laughs> eligibility here. Like we're not trying to win the Nobel low Peace level. Prize. Yeah. Yeah. I would have loved to have seen Tebow on hard knocks and then you've got to cut him and he comes in and he's just like, you know, coach, I totally understand. And I support you and I want to help. And like, he's just literally giving back as you're ushering him out the door. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Mike, you mentioned, you know, playing the parental figure here. I'd imagine as GM, you'd have to be that to your players, but is there one or two players that you've really kind of bonded with over the years? Well, I would tell you like one of the people that um, I probably had the most special moment with was his father was uh, Chad Pennington. So you know, Chad's father was Elwood Pennington, who was like a legendary high school coach. Unfortunately, he passed away uh, a couple of years ago. And we had cut Chad when we traded for Brett Favre. And I'll, I'll never forget, I will take this to my grave because I wish I had this sort of grace and dignity, which I don't clearly. And But so we, we cut Chad. He signs with Miami. It's the 08 season. And in the last game of the season, it was in New Jersey and the Dolphins beat the Jets and they go to the playoffs. They win the division. And that was actually Coach Mangini's last game. And I had a very good idea of what was going to happen. And I'm walking out of the tunnel 
and I see Chad's father, Elwood Peddington, and he's walking towards me. Now, just the context here is everything, which is if somebody had fired my son and then my son came back and beat you, like, I don't know what I would have said, but it wasn't what Elwood said to me. He walks over and I'm sure like my body language had it written all over me, but he's like, look, I know this is going to be a really tough night for you and your family. And I'm just thinking about you and just appreciate everything that you did for my son and my family over the years, which was like the most like classy, elegant thing, like in the moment that anybody could have said, I'm thinking like, you know, that's why Chad Pennington's Chad Pennington. Like he is his father's son. He is like the most gracious, classy guy you could ever be. And I'm like, that's really like what it's all about. Like coming back and having this like athletic achievement of, you know, winning the division in your competitor's building after they cut you and fire you and say, you're not good enough. And then your dad seeing the guy that actually did it and taking the high road, like that's, you know, it, it just inspires me. That's Tebow-esque right there. Let's talk about the Brett Favre experience. What was that like? Yeah, that was actually pretty funny too. So he was really like vacillating there. And um, so we had to make a decision. And I said to the owner, like, you know, we're getting down to the final moments here. Like he, he very well could be a Buccaneer, which was what everyone thought because John Gruden coached him in Green Bay. Brett was in Mississippi. And to go across the Gulf of Mexico was an easy thing to do. And we just kind of persevered and, but it was definitely like a little bumpy there. And one of the things that I think is underrating about recruiting is being a great listener. We knew that Brett was a hunter and a fisher, loved to fish. So we got Google satellite imaging of farms and places to hunt and fish that were within 10 miles of the facility. We sent it to him and I put together a schedule. I said, Brett, you know, on Monday you're in the facility it's recovery. It's getting a game plan. Tuesday is mandatory hunting and fishing. And if you don't hunt and fish on this farm, I'm going to find you. And we had like pictures of where he was going to be. And as we're closing the deal, I said to him, he goes, Hey, Tannenbaum, is there a dress code? I'm like, not if you come. I'm like, what size waist are you? He's like 38 inches. I'm like, if you agree right now to be a New York jet, I'm going to get you a pair of custom made 38 inch waist camel pants. He goes, okay, we're good. I'm like, that's it. That's all it took. You know, you took years of my life. That's what it's about. And then um, we fly down again. So it's Dave Zotter, player development director, my wife, because his wife's coming back. And we get there and the house looks like exactly what you think, you know, an all-time great quarterback's house should look like. You could fill in the blank 500 acres. And at the time, the Jet facility was relocating from Long Island to Jersey. And so we were moving to a new house ourselves as we're moving. And we're waiting and like, I'm getting like a little anxious because our upstairs packing is taking a while. So it's Dave Zott, it's Michelle and myself. And we're in the kitchen and I look over at my wife and she's like, she's like looking up. I'm like, what are you doing? She's like, this is the most beautiful crown molding I've ever seen. I'm like, hey, head down. You married a front office person. You didn't marry a hall of fame quarterback. We can't even afford to look here. Head down, don't look around. And I'm like, oh my God, like, not only am I having like Ajita that we can't get far down here, like the amount of money it's going to cost me from like interior de decorating because Michelle's getting ideas from the FARs. Like I'm going to need a raise a after this trip. When you land him, what's kind of going through your head? Actually, I, I remember like yesterday, Arthur, I, I, it was sheer exhaustion because I felt like I got this guy somehow, some way convinced them, got, got him on the plane. And it was like, 
I wasn't like happy. I was like relieved. It, it was like, I'll never forget it. I was so tired. I was so fatigued. And, you know, I think, I don't know if it's a strength or a weakness or maybe it's both, but like, I'm very like when someone says there's no way you can do that. Like that to me is like, that's all I need to hear. And everyone's like, there is no way he hates big cities. He's not coming to New York. He doesn't want to learn a new offense. He doesn't know Schottenheimer, Dave, or Mangini. He doesn't know you. He's going to go 45 minutes across the Gulf of Mexico and play for the Buccaneers. You're wasting your time. I'm like, we're going to get this guy. And it took like a month of my life, but um, I just was not going to be denied. And I just felt like as much as I love Chad as a person, I just felt like Brett gave us the best chance to win the Super Bowl. It's so funny because I've been listening to his podcast. I think it's Bowling with Favre, it's called. And he's been actually really open. He's talked about his opioid issues. But one of the things that really blew me away was he talked about when he came into the league, he didn't understand football. He couldn't diagram plays. He couldn't learn a playbook. Was that your experience with him? Or was he already a highly intelligent, formed football player? Obviously, he's at the end of his career when you got him. But how much did he actually understand the X's and O's of football at that point? Yeah, he was good. No, he knew it. Like he was knew what he wanted to do, knew how to protect himself, you know, just in terms of dealing with blitzes and pressures. Um, so that was probably at a different point in his career. Like we have a lot of players on here, many retired players, and we asked them if they, you know, had trouble transitioning out of the limelight. Just to, asking you kind of the same type of question after you got your, you know, after you kind of left the league and you were a general manager, was it kind of tough to transition into a new role with the SPN or was that just kind of natural? Yeah, no. And, and candidly, like to this day, whatever it's like two and a half years later, you know, there are days where like, I'm like, all right, you know, if I'm with a team, it's, you know, three thirty nine, and it's a month before the draft. Okay. We're in draft meetings. We're waiting on our doctors. We're waiting for, you know, a coach to cross check this player. We're looking at the board for the you know 50th time. Like I think about that, you know, a fair amount just because I had done it for so long. What I love about what I do now is like as great as Parcells and Belichick were at their jobs, like the people I'm with at ESPN are as good at their jobs. Like when you're at ESPN, like they're great. Like they're hall of famers. Like they are great. Like, and a couple of the shows around like the Mike Greenberg's of the world, the Dan Orlovsky, Ryan Clark, Foxworth, Kimberly Martin, like all the, like they're great. I mean, they're, they're really, really good at what they do. And I'm like, you know what? Like, I always go through life thinking like when I look to the left and the right, like I'm not going to be the one to send us home. Like I am not going to be the weak link. So I invested in it. I hired a broadcast coach. Like if I'm going to do it, like we're doing it. And um, so it's a different challenge. And, you know, I have the good fortune of replacing Bill Pullian and I work really, really hard um, to make sure that, you know, I'm putting out quality content. It shows. I'm fascinated by this San Francisco situation right now. They moved up to the third pick. Jimmy G is unhappy. Put yourself in John Lynch's shoes. How do you handle a situation like that where it looks like they're going to obviously draft a quarterback? They're being pretty open about it. And you've got an unhappy quarterback at home. How do you kind of balance that situation of future versus present? You know, Kansas City ran ran that play perfectly a couple of years ago with Alex Smith and Mahomes. And what I would say to Jimmy G is, look, we got a great team. Trent Williams, Alex Mack, we got Debo Samuel, Brendan Ayuk, Raheem Mostert, George Kill, Bost is coming back on defense. Like, let's go make some noise, like, right now. And in a year from now, there's a good chance you're not going to be here, Jimmy. But you know what? Like, you're going to make a ton of money. You're going to use us to invest in the next phase of your career, and you're going to crush it. And you know what? 
we're going to have a great year together. And then at the end of the year, we're probably going to, you know, shake hands and go our separate ways. And it's going to be really, really good for you. It's going to be really good for us. So the communication is that open. I mean, you're that transparent to say, Hey, you're here for a year and late. See you later. I mean, I would probably couch it like slightly differently. Arthur, I would probably say something along the lines of like, it's very reasonable. You won't be here in a year, but you know what? Like, if you throw 60 touchdowns and two interceptions, it's very reasonable you're going to be here. So the pen's in your hand. You write the script. I'm also fascinated with agent conversations. Who are some of your favorite agents to work with and why? You know, one unfortunately passed away, uh, Eugene Parker. Uh, Eugene was like, I don't know, he just saw things differently. You know, there's a few guys like Jimmy Sexton, Joel Siegel, um, just like deep thinkers that could like – a few of those guys actually had the ability to put themselves in your shoes. And I think like, you know, Tony Agno was another one like that. Like just, they, they could actually understand where you were coming from. Um, I was in law school and I was interning for the Saints with a guy named Marvin Demoff, who's close to the end now. Marvin represented our three quarterbacks, Tommy Hodson and guys that you wouldn't know, like Jim Everett, but he was brilliant. And he had Elway and Marino and he was really, really smart. Um, I always feel like, you know, people ask about like negotiations. I always say like, I'm doing my best if I'm talking 30% or less. Like, I think the most underrated aspect of negotiations is listening. By the way, I, of course I know Jim Everett. I, I remember when him and Jim Rome were fighting each other on set. It was awesome. Yeah, that's right. Mike, what is your capacity with the 33rd team? Because I've seen this posted somewhere as the premier football think tank. And I just want to kind of pick your brain on what this is about. Yeah, I really appreciate you uh, asking. So it's a real passion of mine. Um, when I was fortunate to get the job with ESPN, um, I went to UMass and we started a program where uh, grad students uh, help prepare me for the draft. And from there, it's just grown. We have 50 people on a call every week, former head coaches and GMs, some players that want to be uh, coaches or GMs at some point. And basically, we review the news of the week and there was so much incredible content that came out of it is we started a, a free newsletter. So it's the 3013.com and we just put out our, our thoughts in and around the league. And, you know, we have someone like Wade Phillips breaking down Todd Bowles, game plan in the Super Bowl, or we'll have Mark Trestman talk about what he would do with Carson Wentz and not from a second guest standpoint, but more of like us, like our shared experiences. And the goal is like, when we get off the phone, like, did we get better? And, um, we're also helping some, you know, young students get to where they want to go as well. I would die to be on that phone call. Absolutely die just to hear Wade Phillips breaking down Bulls' game plan against the Chiefs. That's got to be just mind-blowing. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, and it's a very uh, iterative process where everybody, you know, chimes in accordingly. Good stuff. Uh, Mike, on this, uh, on this podcast, one thing we really want to try to do is – uh, find out how successful figures like you continue to elevate. So my question to you is, how do you continue to elevate, you know, in different aspects of your life? I, I try to challenge myself every day. So try to get up early, read. I, I'm a big consumer of podcasts. So I like to walk, get my steps up and listen. Um, and then through the 33rd team, you know, we, we present every week. And in our newsletter that hopefully you guys will subscribe to, we actually summarize podcasts at the bottom and we actually say, in our newsletter, uh, what we're reading. So maybe endless hustle. We'll get in there. All right, there you go. Um, so I think, th like from a sort of like philosophical approach, like 
we are completely aligned. Who throughout your career was your favorite player? Probably Curtis Martin. Um, he was the toughest. Um, you know, it's funny, like years later, um, you know, he would have an injury, you know, second degree MCL, whatever he had. And then the next player would have a second degree MCL and be out a month. And I'd be like, well, wait a second. I remember when Curtis Martin had that injury and he missed 10 minutes and they're like, that doesn't count. Like he's not from the same species. Like he's not, he's just different, like different DNA, different mindset. He's not even in the medical records. Like he was great, great person, tough, smart. Um, you know, where he came from in Pittsburgh was remarkable. And one of the most inspiring things was we signed him to this big contract, 36 million for six years. His mother comes in, we do the paperwork, press conference. Congratulations, Miss Martin. Are you guys going to go out tonight and celebrate? No, I, I run a secondhand clothing store in Pittsburgh. I got to get back to work. And I was like, gosh, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. That's awesome. That's you great. also said you had a great Mangold story. We love Nick Mangold. Yeah, man, there's so many of those. You know, Nick is, uh, <laughs> I'll tell you, you know, what was interesting about Nick was um, his sister was in the Olympics. And Rex made him go. Nick was not going to go because he didn't want to let down his teammates. And Rex told Nick, you had to go. And Nick was a selfless guy. And um, there, there's a lot of, there are a lot of like very funny stories about him, but he, he was a great player and he was, Nick is not a, what you see is what you get guy. Like, Cause he comes across as being like jovial and funny, which he all is, but he was one of those, he was one of those guys like, Hey, we're not being sent home because of me. Like we're, we are not losing because of me. Final question, Rex Ryan. What was the Rex Ryan experience like? I always say it's true. Everything about him, the good, the bad and everything else. But you know, the thing about Rex, like he used to say this all the time, which was very complimentary. He's like, you know, Mike, he's like, we're magic and logic. He goes, you're smart. You're logical. He's like, I got the magic. Cause I'm crazy. And the players see their craziness in me and they can relate to me. So this all works because I'm a nut job like they are. And I can, I'll tell you one just really, really funny story about him. And there's a lot of them, but this is this is certainly up there. So when you're the head coach, like think about it, you're the head coach in New York for the first month, a lot of press conferences, a lot of dinners, a lot of you know things. So and he hates wearing suits and is not comfortable in them. So we're going to work out Josh Freeman in Manhattan, Kansas, and we're about to walk out of the facility and he's in a suit. I'm like, Rex, what are you doing? Like, we're working out Josh Freeman. He has to impress us. We don't have to impress him. He's like, you're right. He runs back, puts on these uh, like really nice, like what he called his dress sweats. So we fly out there. He was like a kid in the candy store wearing his dress sweats the whole time. So we rent a Ford pickup truck and Matt Cavanaugh and Brian Schottenheimer are in like the bucket seats behind us. And we're leaving Manhattan, Kansas, and we pull up to a Sonic, and he orders like, first of all, like five to seven thousand calories of stuff, and the last thing he orders is this like ninety-six ounce thing of like some sugary drink, and it's in styrofoam, and he takes the ninety-six. <laughs> this thing is gigantic. And he goes to put it in the plate in the cup holder, and somehow the cup holder pierces the styrofoam. And 96 sugary ounces go all over him. And he tries to open up the door, but he had pulled in too tight to where you order at Sonic. So he's like pinned in. And all you hear is like, oh, no, not the dress sweats. And he was more concerned about his sweatpants being stained by the Sonic drink than anything else. And Shadi, Matt, Kevin, and I are just dying hysterically. 
you know, nothing else is more important than to keep those sweatpants pristine. 96 ounces is reckless. <laughs> oh, it's Rex. He needs a reality show. I've always wondered if it's shtick or it's real, but the fact it's that real. it's real. It's 1000% real. Oh my God. Awesome stuff, man. This was fantastic, Mike. Thank you so much for the great stories. Yeah, yeah no, I appreciate it. Thanks, guys. A lot yeah, of fun. Everybody at home, check out the 33rd team. This website is incredible. Subscribe, and hopefully, we'll have you again on the show, Mike. Thanks for joining. Okay, thank you. All right, folks, that was ESPN's Mike Tannenbaum. What a stacked show we had. Everybody make sure, as I mentioned, check out Joel McHale's new show, Crime Scene Kitchen, Wednesdays on Fox. Dr. Dubro botched every Tuesday at 9 p.m. on E! And catch Mike pretty much every morning and on your tube somewhere on ESPN talking all about the NFL. And check out his organization, The 33rd. Really great stuff. Thank you to all three of those guests for just another action-packed, fun-filled episode. Before I let you go, guys, we need your follows. We need your support. We need your ratings. Make sure to follow both the show and myself on social media. Endless Hustle on Twitter. Endless double underscore hustle on Instagram at Endless Hustle Pod. Me, I'm at Arthur Cade on Twitter at it's me, Arthur Cade on Instagram. Follow, follow, follow. The numbers are always great. Rate us, support us. You guys have helped make this show an enormous success and we're super proud of the product we built. The guests we have coming up in the next few weeks are absolutely insane. Thursday, we have another triple header. We have one of the biggest stars of the 80s, Andrew McCarthy, brand new book called Brat, an 80s story. We have Bobby Bones, of course, the radio host and American Idol judge, who now has a new show on Nat Geo. And we have a multi-billionaire, Todd Graves, who built Raising Cane's franchise and has a show on Discovery Plus Restaurant Recovery. Those are all Thursday. Thanks as always, guys, for supporting us. Follow us on social media, and we'll see you guys on Thursday. Have a great, great day.